It's all fun and games until Ensign Timmy falls down the well, because <laughs> this is Vija Please, a heinous trip at Warp 5. My name is Joseph. And I'm a friendly community message to the local school children, Peter. Peter, what episode of Enterprise did we watch this week? We're getting into Season 1, Episode 8, Breaking the Ice. They're all about the uh, entendres here, huh? It makes the title, as you and I have discovered, it makes making titles easy, right? Like, let, let's peel back the curtain of Vija, please, for a second. Peter, we, we always talk over what the title of the episode should be, and typically we struggle until you find the double entendre, like, line for the joke. You're typically the guy who gets the, the title down. You, it's you a figure brute it out. force method, and it's spray and pray, blowing out title ideas until you finally say, yeah, that, that's one that isn't terrible. And I think it served us well. So it serves them well, too. <laughs> like, they they know what's up. And who is them on this one? Uh, written, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is the first episode of the series not written by the the headline producers right like this is it this is the first time we've got completely different hands on this thing and those hands have unpronounceably long names it's apparently a couple from looks of it uh maria yakmetan and andre yakmetan i think directed by terry windle uh coming at us first aired november 7th 2001 uh exactly what you pointed out this is no longer Rick Berman and uh, Bran Bradoff sitting at the helm on this for better or for worse. I don't know how to describe this episode. This, this was the most lowest stakes that we have seen since potentially data's day. It is very much a slice of life episode. It is mostly about people going about their spacefaring day and then approximately five minutes of chaos at the end so that Archer can learn a valuable lesson about asking Vulcans for help. The antagonist in this episode is portrayed by poor footing. It was portrayed by by Scott Bakula. It's really like Archer's ego is the enemy, I think. I don't know. It is very much like Data's Day in that there's just you're just kind of like going going to the flow on this one. And you know what? That's fine. I only have half a page of notes, which is the first time for Enterprise it's been that low. And really, I'd have to go back pretty far in my Voyager diary to find another one I took so little notes on. But for just being this kind of mellow, uh, speaking of puns, chill episode, (laughs) uh, it was it was a good watch and it's good character development and some fucking rad Vulcan science vessels. I think the longest single scene in this episode is Enterprise going through the horror of having to answer questions from fourth graders. That runtime on that segment was so long that I was like, am I watching an extended cut or like uh, like some sort of... Uh... It was a sitcom scene. It's what it was. I, it, it was, was a sitcom DVD scene. extras is what it felt like. Like how... How did they? I'm enjoying this. I loved it, but it was a sitcom. Really, I'm talking about poop, <laughs> yeah, and like uh, space microbes, and really just a chance to look at the camera and talk to the audience and be like, "Hey, let let's tell you about life in the Star Trek universe." Like, if only they were talking about the economy of Earth at this point and what space money looks like, and you know what drives people to work. And 
that's that's the fourth grade education that I needed there. Um, but I'm like, damn, they put this on UPN, really? <laughs> yeah, it was it was bizarre in that this it had no stakes. It was at the very heart of this episode. And it was served entirely to have fun banter and little character building expertise moments for for all of the characters involved. And it was great. Like, you got to see Hoshi sort of, like, nerd out and be a teacher, right? Like, I know we're, like, deep in the episode to describe it. Whatever. I don't care. Like, it, it was so clear where these characters come from and their answers. Hoshi is a teacher. We saw that in the pilot. She acts like a teacher. She explains what she does better than anybody else explained any other answer she's very comfortable in being an educator that was clear in how she answered it then he turns it over to trip who wanted to like talk about rad shit because he's a you know a nerd about like technology and they're like they're fourth graders and want to learn about poop you're going to talk about poop yeah they just want to talk about regular shit <laughs> yeah and he gets like resentful it's like to the captain of like you seriously gonna have me talk about poop to these kids i am a starfleet engineer <laughs> he's like talk about poop trip i don't give a shit <laughs> And they throw it the flocks and he just can't stop talking about diseases like like he's it's his passion in life. It was a real EMH moment, but yet still very fitting for someone who's like he. it was like it was filled with this warmth of it was his calling, right? Like that he loves being a doctor and doing all the things that doctors do. That's what this episode is. It's just shit like that. <laughs> and. I after seven years of watching Voyager, where you never got that ever. I love this change that I get. I know so more about these characters, not you know, like fucking seven episodes in, than I ever really felt like I knew about Voyager characters until like the sixth season. Well, let's go ahead and hold the show up to to the Voyager mirror real quick because I was thinking about it on my drive into work and why I've been so easy going on the bad episodes that we've seen so far. And of those, man, I still, I don't feel that Terra Nova deserved the, the bad rap that it got on the internet. You know, my pick for the shittiest episode of this season so far has to be unexpected. And I think that it's going to take quite a bit of work to beat that one out. Voyager, it was so easy to make things feel like a waste of my fucking time because I knew it was going to be a ship in the bottle episode. And at the end, if the big stuff doesn't matter, the little stuff sure as hell doesn't matter. Other than you and me being like, ooh, look, uh, you know, it's a chance for uh, Paris to talk about his obsession with Mars again, right? Mars right. missions. This, I can somehow rationalize myself like, yeah, all right, they're not really doing a lot here, but maybe uh, this pecan pie thing is going to be a big deal down the road or even just you're building steps that these characters are walking up and they'll be back there for someone else to follow. If that plot point ever comes up again, and that is worth its weight in gold in television. That's, that's my conclusion having gone through seven years of Voyager and then coming into this continuity is a big fucking deal. Yeah. The, the, the strength of television as a medium by which to tell stories is the amount of time you get to spend with the audience in theater. You don't have much time. In films, you don't have much time. And talking about visual medium, right? Like, where do you have that time? You have it in television where you're not only doing 10 to 12 to 24 hours worth of material per season, per production period, which is, you know, even like a 10 episode, you know, prestige format television series 
is essentially three movies plus, right? Maybe four normal length movies. I mean, think about that in, in, in context of any fictional, like the fucking Harry Potter films and that sort of thing. Like even like well-developed uh, cinematic universes. Television allows you to expand so much in time to tell more about what these characters are. What are they doing? What are they feeling? What are they like? And ultimately, I think this is what caused a lot of actors who were serious film and theater people to gravitate towards doing television. Not only did the money get better, obviously, but there's an attraction to the idea of, oh, I'm going to play this character. I'm going to do 50. I'm going to do five seasons of 10 episodes each. I'm going to get 50 hours of screen time to communicate this very lived in character that I'm going to not only create in performance, but then be able to sort of play with what the writers want to do and that sort of thing. Right. And you're right. Like that is continuity. That's what we're talking about. That's the strength of television. I think as a medium overall and Voyager was too obsessed with being episodic and not embracing that. And then they just went the exact opposite direction with this where they're like, yeah, let's do a whole fucking episode where there's essentially no stakes and no hazard and no problem for the first 38 minutes. And you just, uh, we just do a whole scene where they're talking to fourth graders and they're going to do another whole scene about trip giving advice to, to Paul about if she'd go through the, the arranged marriage. Like let's figure out who these people are. Let's t- spend time on that. Let's develop that, you know, like good Good. That's what I'm here for. Yes. We're going to start this one out over in the mess hall, I believe. Yeah, it's uh, Trip is looking through a bunch of cartoonish uh, young person uh, art. Uh, I didn't see in the production uh, notes if all of those drawings actually came from like fourth graders, like what happened with the Captain Picard day. Which is great. Um, yeah. The, the Captain I'm, Picard Day was like, if you don't know, that was actually legitimately produced by the children of a class of one of the producers. Like asked like the teacher, like, hey, could you have all the kids do stuff for the show and we're going to put it on and we're going to do Captain Picard Day? That's where that all came from. How fun. And why, why wouldn't you do that again? I, I'll be very sad if that was just, you know, prop master scribbling stuff down. I'm guessing that those got sand, scanned in and then like, 3d printed or I, I don't know those can't be the original right it's not like they're like hold on now that we've dropped this uh klingon guy off on broken bow no wait we got to go back real quick to grab this mailbag from some <laughs> yeah they reproduced them as close as possible to the originals yeah big fat construction paper with with wrinkles and whatnot so they're going through hey look at this not a bad picture uh a drawing and to paul's there to be kind of a little sad sack you know this is accurate yet crude liked that flock says he's going to put one up in sick bay and then for the next four years you see it in sick bay i mean that's awesome yeah (laughs) they actually they actually like follow through on that they always made sure to keep it up like it's good but uh it's all just a little bit of a throwaway so that suddenly enterprise can roll up to a comet and everyone's like oh hey a comet and then the credits roll which we got to skip this time thank thank god yeah so we were good with our unintentional pronunciations. I did like the little throwaway part in there uh, to Paul saying that caffeine doesn't work on Romulan or uh, Vulcans. Oh, that's not until later. That's not until the pie scene. That's later. I think. Gosh. Wow. That's, that's the fucking gap in my notes. (laughs) 
where does all this mail come from? Caffeine doesn't work. <laughs> Jesus. What a slow episode. <laughs> so when they get back from the from the credits, Archer is like, hey, a comet. Why don't we uh, why don't we like figure out what's going on with comets? Not on the star charts. We've ex- we found it, basically. It's the first human you know, discovered comet in the galaxy. This is neat. Let's let's uh, let's hang out with it. And Paul's like, "They're fucking space ice rocks, dude." Like, what do you care? Like, with even you, stupid hairless apes, <laughs> comets aren't shit. And he's like, what "I don't care. Is- We're doing rad space shit." <laughs> it's not rad space shit, though. Like, what? What? It, this is the most important thing Earth has done. And this this goes right back to everything else, right? Enterprise should be a big fucking deal for Earth. It is the warp five engine. This is the furthest reach that Enterprise, I'm sorry, Starfleet has that uh, Terra Nova. That was a big deal. That's a great use of Starfleet resources and and Earth government objectives. Cool. We did that. We tried to like, you know, do a triple A roadside service on some people who got their organs sucked out through hoses. And now we're just putzing around like an old man in the park. Like, let's let's go look at these pigeons over here. And I'm going to go take a look at this fountain and just stand around with a thumb up my ass. Like you're telling me earth doesn't have a list of a thousand and one different things for the pinnacle of human technology to be doing with itself right now. I mean, I think that their job is to literally just explore and find new things. And they found a new thing and they're like, it's our first legitimately new thing. Let's explore it for a couple of days. I get it. It's the novelty, right? Like that's the whole point is that, they're fucking around on this thing, and there's not really a point to it necessarily. <laughs> they're it's just a child playing World of Warcraft for the first time, just poking around trying to fight a tree. I, I, <laughs> it's 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 the most cush of all Starfleet captains. Well, at least at this point, I'm sure he's going to get in some nasty shit later. But like, man, to just set your own destiny and do whatever you want, whenever you want. What, what I thought of when I saw this episode was that. Uh, scene from First Contact where Riker comes in with their scans from the neutral zone after they get assigned to not go to the Battle of Sector 001. And he's like, oh, we've got uh, gas anomalies here. and Oh, a Class 3 comet. Certainly worthy of our, of our attention. And then throws the pad down. Like, the, the 200 years later, it's cool, a comet. Let's spend days looking at it too. A comet. How this... How this stupid thing demonstrates how my time is being wasted. Mm-hmm. After that is the scene where Tucker is down in the mess hall late and he's having a piece of pecan pie and uh, a glass of milk because he's warm. Southern. No, no, warm. cold. Was it warm or cold? It was cold. I got in a big conversation the other day about why. Oh, gosh, I don't even know if we want to get into this, but like why Picard says Earl Grey hot like is hot relative to Picard's pre-existing choices that he's made up to that point? Is there like Federation standards that like hot is 102 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas like very hot would be 106. Like some people like their tea room temperature. It's, it's the technology questions, especially now that we have Google assistance and Siri and this other stuff where non quantifiable statements like hot, cold, um, you know, what's hot to you could be lukewarm to me. The algorithm like, learned what Picard means by hot. That's how you and I would describe it. But yeah. to sci-fi writers back in the late 90s, 
early 2000s, like just just little things that they put in there without any further thought on it. And that there's like very well paid entire divisions of Google and Apple that like nitpick this stuff to fucking back. And they're probably sitting there and like in the back of everybody's mind and like, well, what Picard say when he used to talk to the computer? And, and they're using that as like, of course, because all the nerds who are designing that algorithm all fucking watch Star Trek. That's why they're doing it. But these guys are like bringing <laughs> into their research this baseline that someone just wrote as a throwaway line that's stuck. It's power of pop culture, my friend. True that. So, uh, you know, Trip is being a maximum Southerner, enjoying his milk and pie. Uh, T'Pol comes in. He's like, hey, you want to sit down? You want to hang out? I'll banter with you. I'm a charming fella. T'Pol is really not having any of it. He even says, like, you should have some pie. Like, And they start to establish here the double entendre of the episode, which is Trip and T'Pol have chemistry. Or at least Trip wants to have chemistry with T'Pol, and T'Pol is very slowly warming up to that idea. Do you think Trip wants to have chemistry with T'Pol? I have not gotten that feeling. My observation of their interaction so far has been either he is being a anti-Vulcan asshole, or he's just being warm and friendly, the same as he would be to any other member of the crew. Uh, to me, her doing something like sitting down at the table or even going, I don't know, I'm guessing they don't have replicators in the room, so all food would have to be obtained through the mess hall. Uh, but her indulging these little, I don't know, uh, social niceties seems completely superfluous to a Vulcan. And for the, her to be indulging them, to me, seems like she is she's dipping her toe in the water intentionally. I mean, she, that, I firmly believe that that's correct for T'Pol. She is interested in being social with Trip. She wouldn't otherwise entertain any of this, right? She, right. She, she just wouldn't. And I do think, like, you know, I, I understand that Trip is portrayed, as, and rightfully so, as a naturally charming man. He's just charming with everybody. But he is making a special effort to be mildly flirtatious with T'Pol. I guess I would, the way I would put it, you know, like he's, he's definitely like, he will, he, he, he sees something in, in her being interested in talking to him that he is purposefully pursuing. He, he didn't have to offer her like good advice of what to do. She didn't, he didn't have to, you know, gently, you know, kind of nudge her in the direction of staying and kind of following his advice and living for herself. He chose to do those things. Well, I'd say that their situation had already rapidly changed by this point. I mean, as of right now, they're just co-workers who coincidentally had pulled guns on each other. And then had, you know, had a steaming uh, rubdown session. Well, like steaming rubdown of- was was way before they were pulling guns on and <laughs> shooting each other. So yeah. it's it's a complicated work relationship, but I would not say that it entered um, a level of complex of emotional complexity that it hits once he reads her little secret message. So he tries to see what's on her mind because obviously she's conflicted on something. She pulls a page out of the seven to nine book and just says, you know, basically this was a mistake. I'm going to bed. Goodbye. They're hanging out with this comet and they find out that it in fact has some rare unobtainium on it that no one has ever been able to look at because no one can get enough of it to analyze. And they're like, oh, hey, cool. This comet actually has a freaking purpose. Let's go 
onto the comet and like pull some of it out using our mining equipment. Uh, we'll we'll send Ensign Timmy, I mean Mayweather <laughs> and Malcolm Reed out in the shuttle pod, and they'll go down there and they'll grab some. And now we've now we're doing cool science stuff that the Falcons can't do because they've never been able to get any. Right out of the page of Voyager, we're gonna send our pilot. Yep. And the guy who's in charge of our guns. That way, while we're out here in the middle of fucking nowhere, if anybody comes across us, the guy to get us away or fight the dude will be stuck on a rock. Like, uh, they, and I even have a note for it later on. Like, they got some real goony looking jackbooted extras in this, like a lot of crew cut, derpy looking military dudes. Start throwing some fucking extra people down on these away team missions. Like it's although, again, I guess you've only got a couple suits to go around. But it's ridiculous. You're going to send your helmsman and the security guy to go do core excavations. There's only 86 people on the ship, so. Well, I'm sure somewhere those other 84 people, you might have someone better suited to to climb down in a hole. And and although I guess it makes sense for. um for him to be there as a weapons expert if they're going to be using demolitions while they are determining that they've got this you know thing to go do uh they get a hail from a vulcan ship we get our kind of our first real view of a vulcan ship which i think are i have a very unique look to them they've got this kind of like center mass of the ship and it has a ring around it that represents the warp drive i want to go ahead and direct quote Darius from the trauma support group that this is the apex of the star Wars prequel looking ships meets star Trek. This thing looks fucking great. I love it. And this is in fact, uh, according to what we're going to see in uh, memory elf of the, the first ever on screen appearance of a capital ship from the Vulcan high command. Yeah. So this is obviously pre Federation. So Vulcans are making their own ships. They have their own design aesthetic. They're more technologically advanced, as we have already talked about and will be more firmly established in this episode. And they look like it. They look like elegant machines. You know, like there's a design to it that's very precise looking, you know, um, not overly, overly pleasing, but it does have an elegance to it that is itself pleasing, which is very Vulcan, you know? Absolutely. What brings him there? Uh, not the comet. That's just a regular little junky comment. And I like through all of this, uh, Archer volunteers to like co-study, share information, all the stuff about the comet without saying, by the way, this thing's like packed to the gills with unobtainium. He never does mention that part. But this guy that is the captain of, of the ship that we know is called the Tamur is Captain Vanek. And he is there because Enterprise is there. He's just watching. You know, not creepy at all. Just, just looking at you. And uh, and Archer pulls to to Paul aside. He's like, you notice these guys are showing up a lot lately. Just watching, watching what we're doing. Any idea why that might be? It's a little weird. And they don't make reference to it here. They're in this episode. They're going to in a near term future episode. But uh, I think we all know the reason. <laughs> we all watched it. It was last week. <laughs> A little, little, little accidental oopsie daisy on that uh, that listening station into Andoria. <laughs> yeah, so I was very curious about that because we did just have the Andorian incident, and uh, Archer did just totally bend over the Vulcans and give them a big fat spanking while taking a picture of it and then uh, uploading it to the internet for everybody to see. 
just really rub their face in that big shit pie sandwich. Nice and firm. Not a peep about that. And that's a big miss for a story or a, a show that does have such strong continuity to the point where they're so absent in discussing the Andorian incident that my assumption by the end of this is that these ships have been hanging around specifically because there is this obligation for T'Pol to enter this marriage uh, and that these ships are there. I'm, I'm assuming whoever her to-be husband uh, the family was well connected within uh, Vulcan society and that those ships were there specifically for her to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to respect this tradition uh, and they're going to give me a ride home. I mean, that's actually a pretty good headcanon. Um, there's not necessarily any kind of confirmation of that being true, but that's actually probably a, a, a very feasible reason, right? Like that you subtly, you know, suggest that these ships need to be near enterprise and oh by the way this encrypted transmission is going to go through at the same time and we'll see let's let nature take its course right right but the social the it's very vulcan because they're not going to outright tell her she needs to go there's going to give her every implication that she should right and every opportunity to do so and say you have no excuse and at this point you are just flat out disrespecting the tradition and that's bad and here's some peer pressure for you to fix that. So that was my impression once the the big reveal as to what her situation is. And it's funny, too, because we've got this A-B plot on here, right? And my assumption is that the A plot's DePaul. But I, I think in reality, it's supposed to be whatever the fuck's going on in this boring asteroid of uh, Twisted <laughs> Knees. Yeah, I mean, the most exciting thing on that asteroid is that uh, Mayweather makes a snowman. <laughs> and, like, he makes... <laughs> Like they cut away down to the surface and, you know, they're, they're doing their mining thing, but you know, Mayweather's like, I've never seen snow. Snow is great. I want to throw snowballs. This is amazing. He makes a snowman. He gives it big ears. Reed is like giving it like little eyes and a mouth with a plasma torch. And like, haha, it looks like the Vulcan captain. Fuck him. And then, uh, you know, their boss is like, Hey, you know, we can see you, right? You, uh, you want to get back to work? They're like, of course, sir. <laughs> like, you know, the time it took to make that snowman, you could have safely made it back to the shuttle and uh, yeah. averted disaster. There is a line of dialogue in here when the, they're like, what's going on with this ship? Oh, you know, they're just hanging around watching you. And uh, Archer says something along the lines of, oh, well, if he's the kind of guy who likes to watch, we'll give and I'm like, ooh, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know what your fetish is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sexy glimpse into the future. Have we seen here? But the the. I think it's the the a plot is the the letter. So the sequence of events is Trip is just doing his you know tech thing and discovers this thing in the tra- in the buffer and it's like what the hell is this? I don't understand what it is. It was in the communications buffer for some reason and brings down Hoshi to be like, what is this? Do you know what this is? And she's like, yeah, that's Vulcan. That's a transmission. And uh, it was sent to T'Pol. <laughs> so this is an encoded Vulcan transmission that was set in secret to the first officer who's constantly being questioned about their loyalty. And Trip Which, what a great time to bring up. Hmm. Do you think this is in regards to us uh, leaking area 51 onto YouTube? <laughs> Could it be? And instead of saying that, it, you know, it's directly, they, they just orbit it and then never mention it, which I agree is a miss. The captain authorizes Hoshi to de-encrypt it and translate it. Like, so this is all up by the book, right? Like 
Trip takes it to the captain. The captain's like, yeah, I need to know what that is, considering everything that we're dealing with. So, yeah, tell me what that is. Hoshi does it, and it's like, here's the message. I have not read it. I've translated, I have decrypted it, and I have translated it. I've read it through translation matrix. You have, if you want to violate her privacy, you are going to have to be the one to do it. I refuse. And then Trip reads it, and it's like, oh no, I'm, I'm a dick. <laughs> Let's talk about Hoshi for a second, because we haven't really said shit about her since the Sluggo episode. Yeah, she, that was kind of like her focus, and then she's been a little bit off to the side since then. Back in the closet with her. Uh, my interpretation was that, like, there was some... God, and I'm suddenly reminded of that fucking YouTube video that we shall not discuss. You, you, I can't... Well, how did you find that? What what led you to that? I go to... I don't know, man. The, the, the badness in the internet finds me sometimes. Okay, okay. I, I came across it, and I said, what the fuck... You, you might as well just cut this segment so no one ever asks. <laughs> you never have to say this is for your own good. My understanding of these two, last we touched on them, is that things were mildly catty between the two of them. So it's interesting to me that Hoshi gets a good chance to, A, establish is this Vulcan lady actually a treasonous spy? Or B, let me get up in her personal business uh, because I hate that bitch. So... They're saying a lot about Hoshi and that she minds her own business, but it's not highlighted perhaps to a significant, significant extent because she's she's seen at least what we see in this episode. She's allowed bygones to be bygones and they're not swearing at each other in Vulcan anymore. But like Hoshi's pretty got a personality that's pretty chill. She's not going to hold a grudge. You know, I, sure. doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. She'd be like, I am. It doesn't matter what my feelings are here. I'm not fucking reading this. This is not, and this I is guess not that's almost to, to detriment. Like, had she jumped at the chance for gossip, I think that would have added some depth. And so far, all we know about her is that she's great at her job, and she doesn't like standing next to the warp core. And beyond that, she is very oatmeal. And that got me thinking about a bigger question or concern. I guess I have with Enterprise at this point. Coming off of uh, Voyager, like. I feel like the women are really underrepresented in this. And if we go through, we got Archer, Trip, Flocks, Reed, Mayweather, and then T'Pol and Hoshi. And then you might as well, from my understanding, throw uh, Shran in there because he's going to be a big deal. So you've got another guy contending for spots versus Voyager, where you had at least three women present at any time. Taurus, Seven, Kess, and January with Kess and Seven obviously trading out there. Uh, and then going back to TNG even, Troy and Beverly, and then, you know, yeah, Tyson Rowe. I, I liked Rowe was a big feature. Yeah, but there. she wasn't really around. So I'd say Guinan, Yar, and Roe Laren were interchangeable as to who was around. So it's interesting to see them skin down that thin. And again, coming off of the amount of female empowerment and women as main focus characters, to Paul's obviously getting a ton of screen time and. You can you can determine those reasons yourself. Stuff like this, a nice job distracting you with character development instead of just skin tight outfits. But Hoshi's just kind of blown in the wind here. So they they do a really good job of fleshing out what Trip is about and to Paul and Archer to a degree and even Flocks. But Reed Mayweather and Hoshi kind of get a little stranded. 
I think is is really what the end result is. That's not to say they don't there aren't things and episodes that focus on them and things that develop that, that develop. Like I was praising earlier on that I felt like I, I got a sense that Hoshi was a good teacher because she was able to talk to the school kids with a level of confidence that nobody else was and communicate in a way that kids would understand, right? Like real subtle, real nice way to communicate that in the scene. But she and the other two that I mentioned, Mayweather and Reed, they never get the same level of development as the other four. It's just, it's you know, you got an ensemble cast. You don't have a ton of time to be able to invest that. So you primarily invest in your major three. Your actor playing Phlox is so vibrant with what he's doing that it just lends itself to a lot of that happening naturally. And then you've got two kind of actors that are your weakest guys in Mayweather and Reed. And I want to go back to my list I made. All right, because Enterprise, as of right now, not counting Shran, that's seven main cast members. Okay, we go to Voyager, and uh, you've got nine. Again, if you're going to switch out uh, seven for Kessler at a certain point, uh, TNG eight-ish, and, and even then, you know, you had Guinan coexisting with a lot of these people. DS9 is its own can of worms. And I was actually really surprised looking at DS9 that there's only really two women in that as well, like uh, Dax and Kira. But again, the strength of DS9 is just that massive ensemble cast and the rotating guest stars they bring through. So I think you can supplement pretty big off of that. DS9 is a special animal. Like DS9 has whole episodes devoted to multiple episodes devoted to characters that aren't even in the main cast. Like, Garrick gets a whole shit ton of episodes. He's never a mainline character on the show. He's in, like, 32 of the episodes, and he's, I guess, four of them are devoted to, to, entirely to him. You know, like, DS9 is wild. Well, that's the power of Ron Moore on a leash. It's true. Ron Moore with structures. But, uh, so, you know, back to my, my, my point here is you have a cast that's composed of only seven people. There's less people here than on Voyager and for them to only focus on three when I really think prior to seven coming on board, like they spread the love around Voyager really well. And then she came in and, and absorbed a lot, of, a lot of screen time. It's a return more to the, the TOS sort of way of doing it, which is you're really focused on the three primary characters and everybody else was pretty well, uh, pretty underdeveloped. You never learned a lot about Uhura. You never learned much about Scotty. You never learned much about uh, Sulu. You never learned much about Chekhov. It was all, Kirk, Spock, McCoy. That was it. That's where you spent most of your time story-wise. They were the three names that came across at the beginning. Do you think that they identified over-diversifying the... over-explaining the entire cast as a weak point of Voyager and that focusing on Archer, Tripp, and T'Pol and trying to get back to that TOS formula was an intentional choice by the executive producers? I do. I think that it wasn't absolutely an intentional choice. I feel like I feel that as an intentional choice that they're saying, let's try to recapture that dynamic. Let's create like core characters that we're going to spend almost all of our time with. And they're, they're going to have the primary amount of screen time in each episode. And we'll definitely do stuff with everybody else, but we want to have this trio be the focus of the show and carry things so that we lost an ensemble so that people can follow. It's like trying to split the baby a little bit in terms of having a show that is episodic and that you can kind of pick up and put down a little bit, but also rewards a certain level of an investment because that's kind of what TOS was. Being the guy who has seen this TV show through to the end already, 
Do you agree with that decision? No, especially as they made a pivot towards being entirely serialized. Hmm. Like when they get into season three and they make a huge change in the format of the show, they could have reaped a a reward of having better developed all of the characters. Yet again, I'm forced to look to Battlestar Galactica reboot under Ron Moore which really did seem to have the best of both worlds in terms of a large ensemble cast like Voyager had and um, a strong continuity where things you learn about these characters will be amplified and go on to tell bigger stories. Like it's so funny to see Star Trek dance around this golden era of television as exemplified by Game of Thrones and, and really brought on by Battlestar Galactica and it's like we're going to try it this way big cast with a lot of coverage on all the characters but no continuity up oh, that that didn't really work great now we're going to try small cast with us only focusing on three of them but we're going to have continuity still not clicking gosh darn it what are we doing wrong <laughs> I mean Star Trek missed the golden age of television it missed it it it, it died as it was going into ascendancy it didn't return until it was over. Because I think it's over, by the way. The Golden Age of Television is is over, I think. And the, I think Game of Thrones killed it, mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest with you. So we are post-Golden Age, and the Star Trek that exists now is is in the backwash uh, of all of that success. Well, so, I'm still excited for season three of Orville, and I think that's going to prove you wrong. But we'll see. I, listen, there are always diamonds in the rough. You know, there was enjoyable television before the Golden Age. So, sure. You know, sure. Can happen. Uh, so we spent a lot of time not talking about the episode because there's not much left to talk about. The The key final scene, we already talked about the f- brilliance <laughs> speech to the fourth graders. So we'll go through that. But uh, how long we, do you think that was? Five minutes? That scene? Yeah. yeah probably at least. That's crazy. That's crazy. That, again, I, I'm going to say it again. It's crazy they put that much on air time. I'm like, was someone trying to give someone at UPN the middle finger? Like, you're. This is the lowest energy episode. It's like, and, and it's, it's so fun to watch. It's just low energy. It's no fine stakes. By me, but man, goddamn. God damn. The, the fact they actually say poop. I wonder if I look on the, the memory alpha if poop is a keyword. Poop. Yes. I can click it. How many other times do they say poop? It is only. <laughs> <laughs> it's only said in this episode. Uh, oh, there's a there's mention of a manure truck residue in the bed of that fucking Ford truck from the 37s. <laughs> uh, and then there's uh, I don't not even read the full sentence, but it's mentioned in Voyager drone, which drone was the terrible one with the ninja, the, the Borg turtle, right? Yeah, it was uh, Niles from from uh, Frasier. Well, absolutely, that is the correct association of poop. But uh, I think that's the first time it ever really gets called out. So great on Enterprise for that. The real drama is that Trip reads the letter and realizes it's a uh, letter from Vulcan, presumably from uh, T'Pol's apparent betrothed husband-to-be, saying, you need to come home and marry me. And they realize, he realizes, No, it's oh, not. It's from her parent or his parents. From his parents, that's right. And thus, the theory about the uh, the ship being sent in the first place. And Trip feels like a dick and goes to the captain and be like, it wasn't anything bad. It was personal. You don't want to know what's in it because then you'll be implicated. 
I'm going to go own this because I read it and then tells to Paul, I'm sorry. I have to be honest with you. I did read this. It was super suspicious. I don't know why you chose to do it this way. That's the only reason I found out about it. And I had to look into it because you send an encrypted message off the fucking books. Uh, but, you know, that I read it and I need to make sure you know that. She gets a little pissed. She's angry about it. She goes to Flox because she's not sleeping well. And Flox like suggests she should talk to whatever's bothering her to someone that she can confide in. And ultimately decides the only person that she can talk to about it is the person who knows who's Trip. And invites her to her, him to her quarters and sits him down and is like, this is my problem. I am betrothed to a man I've only met a few times. I'm supposed to go there. I'm supposed to be married and stay there for a year. And I don't really want to do any of this. And Trip gives her the uh, the Southerner advi- Southern American advice of live life by your own rules. You know, don't do things other people want to tell you, America. I like him saying that uh, Earth got rid of arranged marriages the same time they got rid of slavery. And I'm like, mm, pretty sure that's no, wrong. No, that's still happening in 2022, bro. There's a couple of things that happen along the way here. The ridiculousness that there's personal messages for to Paul that the Vulcans decide should be sent as, especially in the, again, especially in the wake of the Andorian incident, like you already got caught being shitty. You're going to, you're going to keep doing it. So let me, let me look on the bright side and say, maybe this is just further reinforcing the fact that the Vulcans have a lot of growing up to do that. It's too inconvenient for them to send her a personal message. But uh, the chain of events of, Trip finding out about the encrypted message, taking it to the captain, the captain putting an order to decode it, and then ultimately Archer wanting nothing to do with it after Trip said, yeah, I read it, it's personal. And uh, Archer, who hates Vulcans and just uncovered a conspiracy, is just like, eh, oh well, we're just going to sweep this one under the carpet and Trip being like, no, what I did was wrong and I got to confront her on it. Him being like, okay, dude, HFGL, uh, I got <laughs> another uh elementary class to answer the questions of or whatever by the time we get to T'Pol making the decision that she's going to involve others in her uh family drama here right again i think this is really a situation and we've all been there before like you kind of got a crush on somebody and there's no real reason to walk in front of their house or or walk by their cubicle or send that message or whatever but you lie to yourself and you fabricate some reason that like, yeah, this is reasonable that I'm going to walk this way and make eye contact with them and and bring this on. And that's exactly what's happening here. There's no reason, especially the way she like rapidly rejects his uh, his advice, seemingly. When she yeah, when she went out of her way to solicit it. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, by the time she does call him and says, hey, listen, even though I don't like you and I shot you and it's it's clear there's some sort of a crush going on. Uh, I'd rather tell you over everybody else, including Phlox, uh, where there is a guarantee of confidentiality about this situation. Now she has made a uh, a gesture of emotional trust. Uh, she has elevated the relationship with Trip. She has uh, opened the circle and brought him in and said, now this isn't work. This is personal. I've specifically sought you out. So him at this point reciprocating with with honest, good maximum effort advice, right? Right, makes sense. And and I don't again, I don't think it's really a flirting thing. Th- this has radically changed their dynamic, and and I don't think that his 
the the depth he goes in to answer and be there for her, it's not unwarranted at this point. I don't think it's unwarranted either. And you know, if I say mildly flirty, I guess I'm not trying to suggest that like Trip is desperately trying to get into her pants or anything. He clearly like I it's to use a school a a schoolboy phrase. It's not that she he like likes her, but he does like her. You know, like she he's grown to appreciate her. And he I think his response to the situation is correct. And I think to Paul is clearly he she had to know the kind of advice that Trip was going to give her, right? Like when he at when she asked him there. Like, I've met this man. I've shot him. Uh, he is a known quantity. He is going to tell me to do what I want to do because he's from Florida. And that's what these hairless apes from Florida say. I, I like, I don't think that her being, I think you're right that her being bad is very like her, like pulling the hair of someone that, you know, you, you actually yeah, and I mean, you like. bring up a good point too. Like she knows what she wants to hear. And she asked Trip there to, for her to hear it. Yeah. And then specifically, you know, it's, stuff like that reminds me of, I don't know if you watched a lot of Taxi, um, but Andy Kaufman's character, like whatever fan country he was from. Oh, no, here we, you know, have a strong tradition that anytime a gift is offered to us, we vehemently deny it and refuse it. And then people say, but no, but I insist. And then it's a green light. Then you can take it. Like, uh, what do you think I should do here? You should do the Florida man thing. No, that's a terrible idea. You're an idiot. I'm going to do that. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so Ensign Timmy falls down a well. Yes. So let's they, move over to the, uh, the lowest stakes ice trip ever. He doesn't even fall out of a well. Like everything's going fine. According to plan. Uh Oh, the sun. Oh, uh, who would have thought that us blowing a, who on the ship full of, uh, astronomers and science people and mathematicians and physicists would have ever thought that blowing a fucking hole on a asteroid might do something to its trajectory. I was fully expecting to happen here, whereas like they were going to detonate those explosives and then the Vulcans are going to be like, hey, by the way, you just changed the trajectory and this thing's going to slam into like a populated planet now. So you better fix this shit. No, this is the low stakes episode. We're not going with that. We're going with, hey, you got to get out of here before the ice melts and then as you put it, uh, Timmy, a.k.a. Mayweather, gets bad footing slips and bumps his knee real bad. He falls down. Reed has to help him back to the shuttle pod. They, of course, don't make it in time. They try and turn it on. It creates a hole. They fall in the hole. It's the second time a shuttle pod's fallen down a hole. The Twice in three pod, episodes. Yeah. This shuttle pod, the, the, the name of that should not be pod one. It should just be Timmy. <laughs> <laughs> so What's Timmy's shuttle pod Timmy has fallen down a hole again? Yeah, because again, they can't blow them up because they only have two. They're actually like aware of the problem that they created for themselves with continually blowing up shuttlecraft. So they, they have to put it in peril, but not destroy it. So it falls down a hole. Enterprise is like, we can fix this. Let's use our stupid grappler. Uh, and, you know, the Vulcan ship asks, like, do you children need help? You look like you need help. He's like, no, I'm not going to ask my Vulcan. Oh, they invited the captain over and he was a dick. Whatever. Super dick. And I, was... again, I was expecting that he was going to be the father of the groom. Um, he was going to be part of the project that was uh, circumvented in the Andorian incident, that he was going to be to Paul's father or uncle. or There was going to be some sort of relationship there. No, he's just a rando staunch guy who I believe they made it seem like he had never met humans before, which is 
kind of cool that I, I like the fact that humanity is not a big deal of the Vulcans. Part of the Klingon, I'm sorry, the Vulcan High Council or High Command, whatever it's called, has this project on Earth. But by and large, a lot of Vulcans just don't give a shit. I liked that. There was one piece of that story that I did like, which was that apparently Archer like was on a Vulcan vessel and like did science stuff with them once. And uh, he was like talking about it to try and engage the guy. And he's like, you're very easily impressed. Like, okay, whatever, Dick, just get the fuck out of here. Whatever. I tried to be nice. I'm going to call my goon to escort you off uh, before, you know, the, the captain gives him a parting shot. You know, you're impetulant and blah, blah, blah. And me. So yeah, uh, Archer's got to stick up his ass about asking this guy for help, which I will say that in this moment, given the interactions with this guy at dinner, I do not fully blame Archer for completely exhausting all of their own resources short of the transporter to try and reclaim these guys. Um, I, I, I do think that he shouldn't have to have been convinced the second time. Like I understand giving it a try on your own first based on the dickery, but the moment it was clear that their lives were in danger and they were not equipped to save them. It shouldn't if he should not have had to Paul have to work him over. He should have been like, of course, yes, call them now. (laughs) No, I I don't want to sacrifice my men's lives for my ego. That's just not something a captain would do. I liked to Paul having to be like, you're behaving exactly how this dickhead wants you to behave. And it's going to cost your people their lives. And and right now what I'm doing is I'm putting my shoulder on you as you're walking blind, my hand on your shoulder, and I'm moving you away from a giant uh, hole in the road. Like that was the best scene of this episode for me um and the dynamics we've seen at play at that point up to this point really worked out well there was another part of that dinner that i liked uh disclosure that while the enterprise's warp 5 engine is the fastest engine that earth has produced that this uh this vulcan ship can do what six or seven uh 6.5 and uh, that i think later on we see one that does seven so they're much faster so they've got warp six. Cool. I'd like to see that. No, it's classified. Hey, you guys and they, you know, Chekhov's gun. You guys have a tractor beam over there, too. I'd love to see that. No, it's classified. And like, I get the engine thing, but like Vulcans not even being like, hey, here's here's a tractor beam like real. I, I think that's a good example of bullshit. The Vulcans are pulling. Um, And while we're in this kind of like. How are we going to save our guys because our fucking Batman grappling hook magnet that won't stick because of the composition, the, the ions in the air or whatever the uh, the issue is there? Uh, do we ever really get history on the transporter? Who who invented the transporter? Peter, I'm happy to tell you there's an entire episode featuring the inventor of the transporter. Earth? I'd have to assume. I mean, if you're not going to yep. give them a fucking tractor beam and that'd be like a pretty good trade, right? Like, hey, give us the fucking tractor. But you can, you can have transporters, too. Yes. The inventor of the transporter is an entire episode devoted to him. Is it going to be Brett Spiner? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I could uh, rant about Brett Spiner and how he's apparently just desperate to take whatever paycheck is handed to him right now. But I will. Thanks. Not I saw it. Picard season one. Shh. Season two is worse. Okay. So that wraps up this episode, um, aside from one important point, which is... They do not have seatbelts on their shuttle pods that fall down. (laughs) It's it's like Mayweather Mayweather gets like six more knee injuries, whatever. And and, I used uh, to be a space adventurer like you until I took a bulkhead to the knee. I will give 24th century Berman Enterprise dudes a pass on not having fucking seatbelts. 
minus you know until they finally get it that in the in the joke of what was it nemesis i think you know they got the inertial dampeners they got really keen great technology their shuttlecrafts are not falling in holes left and right but like after the first time you have a shuttlecraft fall down a fucking hole get get duct tape get get bungee cords get something to keep your ass strapped in that seat ridiculous the last bit of the episode that's important is that Paul stays on the ship but is having a piece of pecan pie as she is writing her dear John letter. She's looking at that pie too. Like I'm going to eat the fuck out of you. (laughs) I mean, she's like in that bodysuit. Like I only get to have one piece of pie a year. (laughs) in this fucking thing. And I'm not even being possessed by the EMH right now. This is going to be all me. Yeah. Overall, it was fun to watch, but is the, the lowest stakes episode of Star Trek you'll ever see, but I don't mind it. Didn't mind it either, but coming uh, out of this and going into season one, episode nine, we're going to be getting into civilization. Got Archer up against a very slanted wall. That's the other thing, too. Archer in this episode was like, I don't know, was he talking to to Paul or Hoshi or all I could see was him picking the lowest point of the ceiling in his room and pacing left and right and having to duck under this like structural support repeatedly eight or nine times like dude just walk deeper in the room so you don't hit your head on this fucking thing whatever anyways uh there's archer standing in what looks like da vinci's lab god i hope it's fucking john reese davis (laughs) jonathan uh captain archer and the crew discover a fully inhabited civilization through though less advanced earth-like planet disguised to look like its inhabitants they pay the planet an exploratory visit where they learn that a pernicious illness is affecting the local population as Archer seeks to help them find Malady's source. He finds himself in a close encounter with a comely female alien. How Riker yeah. of them. I mean, got to have that first away team mission where you make it a little too close to first contact. Am I right? Mm. So am I, uh, am I right? <laughs> Uh, Archer's going to get his turn with a uh, space mark here. This is going to be space Mary. We'll have to see. And we will see when we watch, uh, God, where was I going? That I just got lost in that transition. Thanks for listening to uh, this show's hard. <laughs> this is such a low energy episode. Like it's really, <laughs> I just kind of like, cut all that out guys. I'm going to, so you won't have heard how bad I failed in my transition out of the episode, but I just like lost all of my train of thought and my energy, like halfway through a sentence. And yeah, it's cause this episode, it put me to a, into a pleasant sleep, but it was a sleep nevertheless, but we'll see you next week. You know where to find us. Vijay please at gmail.com. Vijay please on Twitter. Vijay please on Facebook. Join the Vijay please trauma support group. Check us out on Patreon. We still got that tank girl Patreon special up there where it's quarantined. So as not to to protect everyone else. If you want to throw us a few bucks, feel free to listen to that. And there'll be more stuff coming down the pipe. We appreciate you. And we'll see you later.